When it's stormy weather, good people got to gather together. Oh, when it's stormy weather, good people got to gather together. We know there's no place to hide. Still in friends, one can confide. Oh, Pacham in Terrace, Mir, Shanti, Salam, Ewa. Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hello, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles. Thanks for listening. On this episode, we get a comprehensive step-by-step how to make sparkling cider from Autumn Stoshek and Ezra Sherman of Eve Cidery in New York. This is Cider Making 101 from the folks who have achieved OG status in the New York cider world because they've been at this for over 20 years and have mentored and collaborated with many of the folks who now have successful cideries of their own in New York. I don't want to overhype them, but learning cider making from Autumn and Ezra is the equivalent of learning winemaking from Paul Draper or Bernard Noble or La Lubise Le Roi. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Autumn and Ezra make some of the best ciders in the world. They are farmers and foragers who turn nature's bounty into some of the most true to place and also refined ciders you can drink from anywhere. From sparkling ciders made from pears, forged from the Finger Lakes National Forest, to site-specific apple ciders from their own certified organic single orchard, Eve Cidery produces uniquely high-quality ciders that are literally some of the best I've ever had and that at times have moved me to my core and have haunted my dreams. Okay, maybe I do want to overhype them. Because I think the quality that is exhibited in their ciders comes from their deeply thoughtful approach to farming and living in the land. You're in for a treat in getting to know these two. In addition to teaching us how to make cider, some of the highlights of this episode are learning about Autumn's conversion to organic farming, or how foraging can reconnect us to the land, our community, and our dependence on nature, as as well as inform the potential for reparations to those who were removed from the land. And we even get a glimpse of how to move into the future of growing fruit organically, even on the East Coast, where the fungal and pest pressures are extreme and complex. There are so many nuggets of wisdom and so much dense practical and technical advice here, you may want to listen twice with a pen and paper. I know I did. So enjoy. Ezra? Yeah. um, Hey, thanks so much for doing this. (laughs) Sure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I really appreciate this. And I, I, I will start by just saying... I, I love cider. I fell in love with cider in New York uh, over a year ago, maybe two years ago. And most recently, when I was at your place at Eve Cidery, I tasted a Perry that was that you guys had made from foraged from the, the, the Finger Lakes National Forest or Finger Lakes Forest, whatever it is. I forget what the name of it is, but honestly the best cider i'd ever tasted in my life incredible just just truly truly magical and i know uh yeah i don't know it's one of those things where i was like oh i could just bathe in it um floral fruity crisp i don't know ever ethereal 
you know, haunting, honestly, it, it had those kind of features for me. So, wow, thank, um, thank you. Thank you. I mean, I feel like we should end it now. It's just going to go downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> Not the end. And everybody should try it if they can. But I mean, it's just when when I thought about like just the quality of it, regardless of like if anybody had my same reaction in terms of, you know, the the taste making them moving them that much. Like just to think that this is a beverage, like this is such a beautiful beverage made from, you know, wild foraged sort of feral trees in it, it's so specific it's so unique in on the planet like it really can't be replicated anywhere and i and i think that in itself it's it's like what you could charge anything for it and it wouldn't it would not be worth it wouldn't be enough honestly like it's that kind of when you think about really the everything that goes into that i think it's just so such amazing that we can actually imbibe these kind of things from you so thank you for that well thanks for that and thanks for noticing because i think you sort of maybe just like crafted a mission statement for us that we don't have but but um (laughs) that idea of like um a singular experience in a bottle um because it is a record of a time and a place that never was before and never will be again um, Mm -hmm. is something that I think we really try to do with our work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think you do do it and and you've been doing it for a while and, and you've uh, kind of achieved OG status there in, in upstate. I know a lot of people that I've talked to have, have referenced you and credited you with giving them guidance and giving them help and mentorship and, um, I think the only reason that we get OG status is because Autumn started it when she was 21. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say because we're old. <laughs> no, that's, I'm, I'm arguing against that perspective. <laughs> I'm saying it's not because we're old. It's because we've been, we started, Autumn started when she was like a teenager. <laughs> so, I mean. <laughs> How did you, and what, what was that? What was the bug that got you started, Autumn? Well, oh, uh, let me try to tell this story in a really short, quick version. Um, I was working on an orchard when I was uh, taking leave of absence from college and really started to just fall in love with the orchard, which is a magical place. Um, you know, the orchard, <laughs> just in general, an orchard. And uh, at the same time, I was... Uh, waitressing at night, farming the day. And I was for the first time, like kind of learning about food and wine and like learning about this idea that like there are grapes that are grown in specific regions and the wine has a name and you can expect it to be like this. And it reflects the soil and the climate. And that, that was just like fascinating to me. And I, this was in 1999 that I read um, on the cover of a trade magazine, the Fruit Growers News, uh, that Steve Wood, who is the owner of, um, ooh, sorry about that, who is the owner of Farnham Hill Cider in New Hampshire, um, mm. had, was along with Lulu, along with Lulu, thank you, um, his wife Louisa Spencer, uh, <clears throat> were growing varieties of apples that were specific to making cider. And this is back in a time when really cider, like 
in most people's minds was sweet unfiltered juice that you get at the farm in a jug, um, except for maybe woodchuck. And um, it just blew my mind. I, I could not believe that that this was a thing, that cider was made in England, which is where his wife's family is from um, and had been for hundreds of years, um, and that these varieties were unlike anything that um, we had ever encountered before. So I, I drove up to meet Steve, and Steve was incredibly generous with me and um, loaded me up with cyan wood from oh, wow. his English cider varieties, which he had um, was, is really the first person, as far as I know, who had brought these varieties to the U.S. Um, in recent times right. um, and tasted me through his barrels and, uh, you know, admonished me to go to England and take a, a class with uh, a, an educational professional there, which I did do, um, as well as grafting those varieties onto like Vistabella or some junky variety that had no use in the orchard where I was working. When I went to England, I think it was the following year, um, I was sort of struck by the cider industry there as there's sort of a real dichotomy. What I encountered was on the one end of the spectrum, these massive industrial factories um, and sort of industrial production system, um, mostly sort of kind of developed and orchestrated by, by Bulmers International, um, where the apples are harvested with this big machinery and they're turned into concentrate. And, um, you know, there's this sort of homogenous cider that you can get at every pub um, hmm. anywhere you go. And then on the farther end of the spectrum, like these cranky old guys in like filthy barns making cider with literally with like straw, like had been made for eons, you know, without <laughs> any kind of like introduction of, uh, you know, some modern wine, t- wine making techniques. Um, and it was quite rough. And I just sort of had this vision, like at that moment, having grown up in the Finger Lakes of us, of that cider could be something somewhere in the middle of that, which would not really in the middle, but just something different, which would be similar in this way to the Finger Lakes wine industry. And so that was just kind of like this, I just was sort of struck with this vision and completely impetuous and like, felt like anything I did at that time was going to be mm-hmm. cheaper than continuing my college education. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's the origin story of, of Eve Cidery. I, I love that. Did you apprentice with any, like sort of the, the style of cidery that you guys are now practicing while you were over there? You know, that's funny. I was just telling somebody today that like people are, there's a problem in cider that people just start these businesses without knowing what they're doing. <laughs> well, maybe it's a problem for them. <laughs> but I mean, like, I know I'm saying it's a problem for the producer. It's like, do you want to do this to yourself? Well, yes. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yes. And, but. and, and, and I think, you know, and I was pointing out to them that like, I 
so many people I know who who start their own wine label have spent years like working in harvests and apprenticing to winemakers whose styles they like and so on and so forth. Uh, I don't speak French um, or or Spanish or Basque. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, no, I mean, there were, in the U.S., there was there was nobody making cider at that time besides oh. Steve, you know, and 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 like oh, and a little bit later, Diane Flint. Um, in Virginia, but uh, we ended up, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to okay. you off. We I ended up close. really like sort of getting our mentorship from the wine industry, I would say, in the Finger Lakes. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, they do make some sparkling wine there too, don't they? In your, in the Finger Lakes? I, I wouldn't say that actually that we learned that part of the okay Got um, it. of our focus from. I think it was you learned um, yeah just sorry just fermentation it, science and that yeah kind of the kind of the approach of of making like a fine clean wine. Got it. Okay. Um, I was in regards to like what's the right way to learn <clears throat> how to make cider or wine. I was just going to say, I was thinking of a, of a, um, analogy what popped up in my mind. Like I used to watch my friends work on cars and I got that background somewhat mechanical background, but I don't think I really learned much until I started doing it myself. Right. And anyways, so I guess you could go to school for like mechanics or something and get right, a good, right. good preparation for working on machinery, but doing yeah. it actually is, I think also like a really difficult, but legitimate way to, to learn. Right. As long as you, if, if you have if that humility, if you, yeah, if it, well, if you have that humility going in that you're, you're going to be learning on the job, it'll hopefully encourage yeah. you to start kind of small so that your mistakes are also small I, we've I made some that... big mistakes <laughs> <laughs> i think it's also important that you like are willing to you know not bottle it when it needs to yeah. be not bottled right. and mm. that's been i think like a, a big piece of like our just our entire history like from kind of learning how to make cider right off the bat to transitioning to organic to for example um transitioning to doing wild fermentations i think mm -hmm. that's this one been a that's one way that maybe the you you know leaving yourself the room to fail and knowing that that's just part of like the way that you're doing things um has has been a big part of of what we do well okay I, I will definitely come back to some of these things let's i would love to situate everybody in the in where we are where you're so you guys are the proprietors of eve cidery and and where are you like where can you tell us a little bit about where you are and what that's like so we are located about 18 miles south of Ithaca, New York, and that is in the Finger Lakes region. Um, more specifically, geographically, we're located um, 
basically at the place where the Northern Appalachian Plateau crashes into um, sort of like the Finger Lakes Basin. And what it is, is that like sort of the really prominent geological features of it are that it's a bit higher elevation than the lakes and that higher elevation aspect was pre-glacial and in fact caused the formation of the lakes when the glaciers came down from Canada um, there they were impeded by this higher elevation area and they began you know they just because they're like a moving thing they began churning and creating the lakes um, mm. and they eventually cut through and they um, make their way through these these valleys that had pre-existed um, and they're what's called a glacially oversteepened valley. So you have the hill, the the whatever whatever the the remnant of the Appalachian Mountains, and then you have the glacier running running down it like a river and cutting the sides into these like really 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 steep hillsides. And so um, and then and then finally, <laughs> um, when the glaciers receded, they began melting. Um, just about like six miles to the north of us and that these massive rivers then flowed down and they were full of what's called glacial outwash, which is gravel um, made by the glacier of all of the material that the glacier managed to pick up, you know, from New England all the way through, you know, uh, like the limestone areas in northern parts of New York to the shale from down here. So uh, we have orchards that are in three locations um, right here on our home farm. We have an orchard that's on a glacially oversteepened hillside. So it's sort of like a thin layer of soil that's made from the parent material, which is shale overlaying like layer, like steps of shale. And it's a super like rugged site where it's almost too steep to take equipment. And um like what is, you know, like agriculturally marginal soils, very, very well drained. And then we have an orchard here in the valley, which is on top of 80 feet of glacial outwash, which is essentially gravel, um, but wow. which is also a gravel fill aquifer. And then we have an, uh, our, the other orchard that we take care of, um, which is just on the other side of the sort of watershed divide where um, in that orchard, the watershed is flowing north to the St. Lawrence, um, whereas here it's flowing south to the Susquehanna uh, River Basin. But that orchard, <laughs> interestingly, is also on um, a glacially carved hillside that was the shores of Lake Ithaca. Um, where the the lake, the glacial lake, when it receded, deposited the same kind of glacial till that's in our valley orchard. So Gravely. maybe more details and information than you wanted. <laughs> I was never like really interested in geology, but when listening to Autumn describe it, it sounds really like I, I've it's... learned to to see how 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 interesting geology is. I was just going to say to Autumn, you should send a shout out to that author or that book that you had. Um, yeah, that my dad's book. Oh, is it your dad's book? Because I remember 
Um, even um, this woman that we're friends with who came and, and stayed on our land, who's, who's a cider aficionado, Erica, well, I guess I won't say her last name, but she, I think, read that, was reading that book, it sounded like. It's a classic. Yeah, and it's, 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 um, it has so much technical uh, information about the geology of like this area. Well, the fun thing about that book, awesome. and you know what, if I can remember, I'll, I'll say the name, but I can't remember it right okay. now. It's, it was written like in the thirties. It's, uh, it's but so he has, he Cornell, has, Cornell he, professor, ha- right? he has field trips and there are all these places that are around us that we go to where you can see these examples of geology. So it makes it yeah. experiential learning. Yeah. Oh, that's fun. It's well, really yeah, amazing. He's so, you don't remember the, you don't remember the name. Well, no, I, and I and I definitely won't remember it if we if we try to ask me here right. on the podcast. <laughs> moment, right, right. My mind is completely blank. Mind freeze. <laughs> yeah. If anybody totally. is listening and wants to Google what, like, I'll, I'll think of it. Okay. Well, yeah, we'll we'll put it in the show notes or something. I'll I'll make a little note at yeah. the end or something when you guys remember. <laughs> Send me an email. Um, okay. I love it. Yeah, and your description, I agree uh, with Ezra Autumn was very very dynamic it's very active it's like we're there for these movements the the tech you know all of these uh things that took you know eons um but that's i i love hearing that too and especially the way you do it um but you also i mean the way you describe it belies the fact that it's it's very pastorally beautiful um i think you know it's it's, I think it's lush. dramatic. They like the apple. Yeah, it's just, lush and it's like rolling like, and um yeah, there's areas that are pastoral but like I think right where we are it's it's just like I don't know it's like drama and darkness and <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the little cloud hanging over your, your farm. <laughs> it's the cloud over the farm. That's right. Yeah. Lots of drama here. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I always, I mean, like when I'm there, I just like, you know, I'm coming from a, a very different, you know, like a contrast is so stark for coming right. from Los Angeles where we have this. That's the beauty of travel. Sort of, yeah. Like we have these sweeping landscapes that are super you know, towering mountains out to like, you know, and then it's rugged and dry and spiky plants. And then I come there and it's like, it's just to me, it's like, honestly, I'm high for a couple of days and I think it's the oxygen. Like I can't sleep because there's just like an inundation of fresh air and oxygen when I'm there. Well, we have... We have, we talk, we, we talk about this, actually, I've, I've had this conversation with people who grew up in dry climates, um, that they can feel like suffocated, uh, in the summers here because the plants are just <laughs> growing so fast and so lush and you, mm. you just feel like, yeah. oh my gosh, they're going to cover everything. And <laughs> yeah. we'll, well I'll take that kind of suffocation over this, the, the real sense of suffocation when like there's fires surrounding you and the sky is just black with smoke and you you're like you can't you can't get a you know flight out because everybody else is getting flights out (laughs) and you're like um that's kind of yeah like oh man yeah yeah but but (laughs) i mean i always think of like the shire when i think of where you guys are (laughs) beautiful you know sort of uh, yeah just and so patchwork so many different mm. terrains you know mm-hmm. within 
this area totally. and it's not like so little little nooks and hollows and yeah totally you get the forests and the farm yeah and streams and little gorges and yeah um lakes big lakes yeah i love it um so where does the name eve cidery come from because neither of you are eve <laughs> oh, don't tell that to I don't know, 350 people out there. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that I've come across through the, through the years. Usually I'm, usually I'm Eve. Um, okay, got it, got it. <laughs> yeah, so the name comes from a character in a song by Pete Seeger. Um, and the song is called Letter to Eve. It's like an obscure song that he wrote. And, well, I grew up listening to Pete Seeger. Um and he's a great hero of mine. Okay. And um, the song is a sort of written like um, an, a metaphor for a conversation between a pacifist and a freedom fighter and like kind of their the philosophies about um, mm. what to do about sort of what's going on in the world in, in, in the song, it's what to do about the fact that they've been kicked out of the garden and Eve, mm. Eve rep- represents the freedom fighter in that song. So that's okay. a long story. Yeah, no, that's, that's, I, I, well, I will, I won't go into what that means to me, but that does bring up this very, um, like a like a philosophical approach to what you're doing in a way like as a as a foundational thing like you you didn't name it after your last name or your first name or something like that which you know is a, a common mm. thing with with the uh, brands like you know? <laughs> right. that would have been, been a good name <laughs> no i mean i'm not making fun stochek's a good one sherman I is don't... good but my my name was changed when when my uh, grand uh, father came here and it was Cyrulnik. So that would also have been a good name. I don't know. I mean, my grandfather Cyril. tried to change his name. He tried to change his name. <laughs> oh, he just he just got one letter changed? Yeah, he thought it, it, it seemed more American when he added a C. Uh. <laughs> well, I, I and I bring this up because I, I feel like one of the things that I really appreciate so about you is you're, <laughs> you're still, still no, no. <laughs> that would <laughs> out. People would always think it's like where is that from again? Poland or something? <laughs> great, great side of Poland. Oh yeah, yeah. Those are the Polish people who moved to this country. <laughs> it's not Anyways. Polish. It's Silesian. Well, that's not on this planet. I remember <laughs> Silesia. I mean, seriously. Anyway. <laughs> um, but anyway, you guys are are very thoughtful about what you're doing, I, which I really appreciate. I think uh, there's a, I mean it's not too much of an exaggeration to say that you both have a, a philosophical bent, a very, you're very conscious and aware of, of, of bigger ideas in that you're engaged in with your humble cider making. Um, I say that facetiously, but, um, and, and I think that's really cool. And I would love to get more into that. I, maybe a good segue is, I, I know, I almost called you Eve Autumn. That you <laughs> see, you programmed me, inceptionized me. Um, I know that you, when you started making cider, 
uh, organic was not at the fore of your mind. And I would love to hear how that transition happened in your life. Like what, what, what was that like and what, what caused that? Well, yeah, I, I, I learned orcharding, um, through the sort of traditional, um, IPM conventional lens mm-hmm. and, which, which is integrated pest management. Integrated pest management, um, which is the idea, I think, that you would use, as opposed to just spraying on a schedule, you would use metrics that determine when you should spray, whether it's a time and temperature chart or algorithm or, you know, counts in traps, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But really, it's just an excuse to spray uh, synthetic chemicals, which, and, and I say this, you know, having grown up with, uh, hippie parents who tried to start an organic vegetable farm in the seventies and quickly got like real jobs. Um, (laughs) I like coming from that background, I was like, Oh wow. Like this is the real deal. Like this is, this is happening. Like these are real crops with real yields, you know? Um, and, and I certainly have sprayed, you know, miles of glyphosate in my life. Um, so yeah. So I guess that background is that I did not get into agriculture like with those ideals, although it's not entirely true because I first became interested in farming on an organic dairy farm. And, um, that made like a huge impression on me, Mm. but with fruit growing in the Northeast, the, the conventional wisdom has always been, and, and, and to, to my chagrin continues to be that it is impossible to grow fruit organically in the Northeast, that that that's apples, that's grapes. Um, you know, the reason being that the, the humidity, and the moisture uh, just creates almost insurmountable fungal issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have these just like incredible pest complexes uh, in part because apples grow apples and pears and hawthorns and amelanchier grow wild everywhere. And the, the pests are just completely endemic. Um, I had an experience where I, w- we were doing a grafting project in the orchard and in that happens in the spring um and the spring is you know the heavy the heavy spray season on an orchard right and i had you know this was the first spring that i i had a child Uh, my daughter was about six months old at the time and you know i i did i she she was with her parents or something and um i did the day and uh, I thought to myself, well, I need to take a shower before, you know, I go pick her up because I've been working in the trees that have been sprayed with fungicides. And I don't know. I just had this moment where I was like, oh, I, I I've actually, I've been absorbing this through my hands all day. I wash my hands. I can still smell the smell of the fungicide and, hmm. and it's in my body and I'm going to go breastfeed her. Yeah. And, and I think before that, I was kind of just like had this attitude. I mean, I was young, 
it was in my early twenties. And I, I kind of had this attitude, like, I'm just going to take one for the team, you know, like my body is indestructible and, you know, um, suddenly it was like the choices that I was making were affecting somebody else who didn't have a say. And I was right. thinking like, well, when, what, oh, okay. You know, I can't bring her into the orchard. I can't go into like, what am I doing? That's not even like the point of this whole thing. Like, uh, and that was at that time was like, okay, we either have to do this a different way or I don't want to do it anymore. Right. And I think the really like important thing that I want to stress is like at that time, I think the only information about growing apples organically from the Northeast was like this publication that Cornell had made where they were basically like, well, you could use sulfur, but it doesn't work that well. Well, you could try sulfur here, but it's not going to work that well. You know, like spray sulfur 15 times and you're going to have a shitty crop and you know, it might be worth it if you get some kind of premium, but uh, it's not really a good idea. Um, So like there wasn't, it wasn't just like, oh, we were spraying chemicals because, you know, we're just callous people. It was like, we didn't really know what to do, you know? Um, And there wasn't a playbook and there wasn't support and there wasn't a whole lot of other growers to go to and learn from. Um, And so I was influenced by, you know, Michael Phillips' book. Um, But again, I, I have to say, like, his context is not, was not in the context of, like, a commercial orchard. Right. Um. And so a lot of it, again, kind of like we did with cider was like, like connecting and networking with other people who were interested in working on similar things, um, trying things, figuring out what worked and what didn't work. And for us, it was what was like a multi-year process because we just like sort of tackled one problem at a time instead of just going from Turkey. Um, but I would say now our orchard is healthier than ever. Um, I'm really, is really that, proud of, of what we're doing. Is, is a key to success with organic growing actually health in that you're, you're generating or you're, you're encouraging a natural resistance and ability to fend off some of the, the issues that will inevitably come up? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the best analogy that I can think of is just, you know, really similar to our sort of approach to, um, like human medical treatment as well, which is that, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, um, farming is based around these sort of reactions to, uh, the disease and the crisis that's happening when like the disease appears as opposed to looking at like, why is the disease appearing, you know, or why is the disease appearing and then the plant is succumbing to it? Or another element I think of it is like, why do we care? (laughs) Because I mean, that's one of the things I think that's really important, at least about our orchard is that, in conventional and organic apple growing in the Northeast, like 85% of spraying is about cosmetics. Um, And personally, I believe that that is in direct conflict with juice quality. 
Um, and so like kind of just what I mean by that is that so many of the like non-sugar and non-water components that are in the fruit itself are parts of the plant's immune system. And, um, and I think that that when your focus is on growing vibrantly healthy plants, not vibrantly healthy because disease never happens to them, but vibrantly healthy because they're resilient in the face of it. Um, that the juice quality is much better. I th- that is a very well said. I, I, yeah, thank you. That's, that's a really great way to put that. You know, um, I think <clears throat> organic, like apple production in the Northeast, it's, there's, there's science behind it and there's like a lot of thought behind it. It's not, you know, it's not just, um, I don't know, dancing around naked or something in the orchard or, you know, <laughs> like petting your trees and giving them like good feelings, you know, right. and there's, um, there, <clears throat> there is, a, there is a lot of spraying involved and sure. Yeah. I, I was going to ask about that. The reality yeah. is that there is like kind of like a triad of approaches that we're all, that we're, um, bringing to uh, bear on the orchards, you know, which includes um, supporting like the immune system of the trees and is that through microorganisms? What do you, how do you support the immune system? Is that by creating a, a, well, you, I think you mentioned Marone. Don't they produce regalia? Gotcha. Yeah. 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 Or Japanese not weed extract, for example, which, right. um, But, but we, but we use allopathic stuff to, you know, like sulfur and copper in, you know, appropriate circumstances and pyganic. So to be honest, you know, to be clear. Um, oh, of course. Yeah. But I, but I, I, I would just like temper what he's saying because I feel like all of these conversations are, <laughs> so, it's so like without context. And I always mm-hmm. wonder like, what is the person who's listening to this podcast? What is their like context for any of this? Yeah. Um, I was thinking about something today, uh, which I feel to be really true. And I was going to, I was going to make a joke about it when you say, when you asked it, it, what, what is the secret to being organic? And I was going to say, it's how many years since you were last conventional, <laughs> but oh, what do you mean? I just, for, for me personally, you mean like in I your th- mindset? No, yeah. I think that, Oh, I think what, that a yeah, lot yeah, like yeah. this is okay. For, so, the, for the orchard to recover. It's not only just to recover, but like to, um, mm-hmm. you know, some of our focus has revolved around, and, and I heard you mention this, Adam, but, um, just to like bring this out, some of our focus has revolved around, for example, tweaking our soil fertility. Yeah. And, and that's not about NPK. It's mm-hmm. about right. calcium and boron and the ratio of phosphorus and potassium and calcium, um, you know, and stuff like that. Or for example, since it's been something that we've been thinking about um, adding carbon to our soil, as well as um, adding microbiology, mm-hmm. both in the form of cultures that we ferment and spray um, and food that we feed the microbiology, such as, you know, uh, fermented fish. Um, I was, I was just looking, I'm, I'm really curious because this is now like something that's, that I've been thinking about a lot, but I was just looking at our soil test from 2000, 
19 and um, saw that the, the carbon percent mm. carbon in our soil is mm. 6%, That's crazy. which is, is good in the context of agriculture where yeah. 2% is considered good. You know what I mean? Right, um, right. But, but now that becomes almost like this metric in my mind because yeah. I can see how mm-hmm. by, by building the carbon, the soil is it's more dynamic, more dynamic and, mm-hmm. and, and that we're now beginning to understand in all these ways, how much we don't understand how the soil around the roots is, is almost similar to like the human gut where, where it's like super influential in the immune system and psychology and all of that stuff, but we don't really know how or why. Um, so that's something that I'm seeing in our orchards now is just um, that there's this payoff for all these things that have felt like, huh, I wonder why we, why we're doing this. It's, it's expensive. It's a lot of work. And I, you know, I had this experience. I took a sabbatical in 2018 and, and worked for my friend uh, over in Hector who owns Forge Cellars. Mm. And I, I, I managed his Pinot Noir vineyard and I developed, you know, uh, this sort of framework for an uh, organic grape program for him. And one of the things that I, I felt like I just like, I couldn't express because there's like a really big issue in the Finger Lakes wine industry that nobody is growing organic grapes. They're not right. growing viniferas organically. They're, they're scared and right. they don't want to take a risk. And there's a lot of risk and they give it one year. They're like, Okay, I'll try it once. Or they they give it like two months, you know? And then they're like, well, icy downy mildew, like pull out the big guns, you know? And I I was, you know, trying to convey, and it's such a hard thing to convey, especially to growers, that like you have to give it time. It takes time. Yeah. There's a couple, right, that, that pursued organic. Well, Rick is still Rick is still doing it, but nobody is certified nobody's that certified. I know of. That's growing vinifera. You know, yeah. nobody's doing organic Pinot Noir in the Finger Lakes. Yeah, I've, I remember. I noticed a, a couple of people have, who had made claims in the past uh, pulled back from that, and I'm, I'm guessing you know either they were never 100 percent and got caught, or they realized they ran up against some risk of losing an entire crop, and were like, "Well, we're just going to have to give up." you know, being right. You know, the stakes perfect were about this. Yeah. The stakes were too high. And so let's, let's be realistic and make a compromise. Um, I did, I did have some, uh, biodynamic wine. I mean, which is organic, but yes, you know, from, more, did you get it from, uh, Weimer? Yep. Yeah. Yep. They have, they're, they're up. I guess it's their block that's up getting a lot of wind and exposure so they're a little you know have they don't have as much of of the pressure as other vineyards would have and they're taking a lot of risk and they've had a lot of failures but it's it's people like them you know in the grape world and i would say you know like people like us and like garrett and eric eric shat from redbird cider who like are like this matters to me on a bigger level than you know just the certification. I mean, I believe in certification and accountability and we are certified organic, but like 
you know, you have to be in it for the long haul and you have to take those years where you are like, okay, I'm not going to lose the crop. I sprayed this thing, you know, to save myself and be okay with that and be like, and it's still worth trying again next year and working out the problem and figuring out the problem. Right. Finding a solution because they have to be these sort of farm based solutions because it's not happening like at the university level. And it's only really just becoming more and more possible, I think, in some ways, because it is starting to happen, like on an industry level, like with Marone, I think their products are making it possible for people um, to do it on a on a bigger scale. Yeah, really, like, I mean, thanks to Pam, you know, there, there are at least half a dozen new tools for organic farmers to use that didn't exist 20 years ago, you know, That's right. exactly. Um, and, and other things, you know, other, other people as well are doing similar work, which is fantastic. And I don't know if it's uh, something that occurs to me, but I know apples are really grow well there. I mean, they grow wildly there <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, you know, I want like in, in wine, a big emphasis that I, like to draw attention to is this move away from vinifera or move away from pure vinifera to at least hybrids with, you know, with the vines that you, I'm sure you guys see growing on your property that are just the native species that do just fine and thrive in with the humidity and the climate that you have. Um, is there something similar to that in, in apples where, you know, I mean, has anybody undertaken in any serious way, the, planting from seed and letting things get to, you know, grow up and well, see. The wildlife oh, has taken on that challenge. Yeah, yeah well, there no, you I go. Mean, <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's a really interesting point to bring up. And I think it's one of the most like sort of interesting areas of cider making for us right mm-hmm. now is, um, yeah. So, so just to kind of, counter slightly what you said apples grow really well here um but many of them die (laughs) the ones that have survived (laughs) are growing really well and then of those um many of them can't can't get a crop to fruit um for Mm. whatever reason um and so they're there but they're not worth growing because they don't make fruit and then of the ones that do survive and make fruit like a lot of it's terrible not not (laughs) not good for making cider not good for eating what have you but um but you know like the great cider varieties of you know of england like kingston black that was not bread it was discovered as a chance seedling you know at a time when people spent lots of time outdoors and had cider in mind and already had an idea and a vision of what apples made good cider and they mm. started making cider with it and their friends liked it i mean i'm making this up but then 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 they propagated it and made some more trees and their friends liked it some more and they handed out the cyan wood and then it became kingston black you know and yeah. that is in fact the case with almost every variety of merit that we work with um they were not bred uh, and so the, the potential exists that somewhere up in the Finger Lakes forest, if you came across, I mean, obviously you guys are foraging and many other cider makers are foraging in that forest. And, and, and like other places too, 
throughout this. And other places, theoretically, you you guys encounter similar feral apple trees like that. That you know, you're actually kind of impressed with the the yeah, like the likelihood of 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 finding a kingston black maybe is still uh, minuscule. Not minuscule, but I mean, but finding like a solid good. Cider apples is really high because, right, the animals are constantly oh, right, planting right. these seeds everywhere, and they're constantly, like Autumn said, being um, selected out for disease right. or yeah. And the only missing piece, right, is is, is the is evaluator, the yeah. you know, and and exactly. so that's like that's like a really exciting, I think, thing so that's that could going on in the Finger Lakes right yeah. now. Yeah, and you guys are, I like, are people doing that or the people taking the doing it from the wife, I would say but there's there yes there's a lot of people doing it and it's also I would say just to be clear it's a very kind of very much like a rural tradition um before pasteurization laws it was it was like a very much a ritual for like rural people to pick apples they were often like hedgerow apples or you know some of them were old farmyard apples some of them were just in the woods and bring them to these like you know super kind of mom and pop press operations and get them pressed um and make you know make their own hard cider that they had in the basement and a barrel yeah drink it fast that kind of thing so there's very much like a kind of rural culture of that here and um uh yeah, I would say there's there's two there's two, there's 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 three opportunities that I want to talk about related to it. So one is finding that variety that's worth propagating, and I right. would say Eric Shat again, a Redbird has mm-hmm. been one of the most diligent in, uh, you know, really seeking out those varieties and then um, saving the cyan wood and then propagating it and planting it as orchard and trialing it and seeing how it does actually in an orchard setting. And thank goodness he did that because some of his best varieties are now gone. They've been bulldozed or whatever. Um, but another, I think another really interesting aspect in this, I would say, um, what Ezra mentioned is like what I'm the most interested in right now is just, um, just, just kind of uh, knowing that you have a certain amount of genetic diversity that has been selected for a couple of traits that are really important to you. And for us with pears, that's fire blight resistance because fire blight is a disease that kills trees. And um, most of the European peri pears are super fire blight susceptible and in an organic program, um, there's not you, much. Know, you run the risk of having a tree at age 15 get fire get fatal fire blight <laughs> so like, oh, man. for a pair that doesn't even start bearing oh. until like you're 14 it, it sucks and that's happened to us um and oh. you know really the fire blight pressure is so intense here that if you have a tree that's you know 80 years old which which trees that we find and forage from are then it is fire blight resistant um oh. and so we're doing a project um, where we are uh, just, this is like like a much more um, kind of low key, low input, low, low maintenance kind of project, but we're um, doing a project. I'm actually working with an agroforestry consultant 
right now, and Ezra's not supposed to know this. <laughs> I'm telling you anyway. She told us we couldn't tell each other. Oh, yeah. Anyway, what your program uh, is? Yeah. Yeah. But um, to to uh, just like use pumice from the trees that that we love, um, that we foraged from, and kind of dump it in piles in. Other and people's yards, I think. Other people's <laughs> yards. <laughs> I might have a yard for you. They'd be like, huh. <laughs> so strange. There's an island of seedlings. In yeah, in our, in our case, um, in the cow pasture. The cows are going to be like, huh. But, <laughs> yeah, we had talked I about this for a while before she was ever on the scene, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Anyway, nope. we can go into that. So anyway... Yes, I, I, all of those I would love things. To. All of Man, those things. you guys, there's so many things. Um, oh, there was a third thing that I didn't a mention. A third, the third, yeah. Yes, and I just want to say this really quick. Um, I think that foraging is really, it's a, it offers an opportunity for like a different way of thinking about the land, like both for, for the people that live there and also like for us as farmers. And it's this experience, this kind of like communal experience, because we're not only like foraging on public land, but we're foraging a lot of times on private property where we mm. have these interactions with the people that live there. Yeah, and they're often tickled that like we find value in something that's making a mess. Um, and uh, so you're not you're not trespassing. This is with permission that you're on yes. private property. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, just yeah, clarifying yeah, for just, any would be foragers out there. Yeah, um, no, this is <laughs> people. This is a yeah, this is people have guns out here. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, right. and, and, and also to be clear, both of us are white in a very white area, and we have that privilege um, to be able to just walk up onto people's porches and be like, "Oh, we want to pick your apples or your pears." Um, but it also, I think, causes this sort of self-examination because I think a lot of times farmers are sort of like, here's my fruit. It came from my land and I worked hard to get it. When you're foraging, you're like, oh, actually, this is the abundance of nature that exists and it's a gift. And it comes from this land that was stolen from people who live here through genocide and forced cultural assimilation and broken treaties and my farmland relocation and um you know certainly i think there's a lot of um there's a lot i think it's a really good thing to be thinking about the commons and to be thinking about the land and to be thinking about reparations and i think foraging really offers us you know a lens to look at reparations in that way I love that. Yeah, I, I I I hadn't made that connection, but I think that's that's really brilliant to and and a really wonderful opportunity. I mean, I I love the idea of foraging for many of the reasons you mentioned, but yeah, that that bringing it back to that idea of reparations and just having a sense of whose whose land it is that you're on, you know. Um yeah, can I yeah. can I make a, a reparations pitch also? Well, and I mean, yeah, I mean, you guys make a reparations uh, three pack or something, don't you? You've made some ciders that you call that you're 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 donating proceeds to a certain organization. I would love you to talk about that if you'd like. 
as well. But yeah, so like when we're we've been, you know, we're exploring like lots of different ideas for like what reparations means and and having it's not like a transaction, it's a relationship and all of these things. Um, And one of the projects that we've been working on in collaboration with Open Spaces Cider and Redbird Orchard Cider is, um, you know, a package of cider that people get that we send to them if they make the requested financial contribution to our land access partner, who's a local organization that is working like in a lot of different directions to um, get sort of traditionally marginalized people opportunities to um, farm and homestead and be on the land. Um, And their name is Quarter Acre for the People Project. And one of the things that's been so rewarding and so fulfilling about the project is that um, it's sort of based around this joyful celebration, which is a virtual tasting that we do um, with the people who participated in the package, um, where we get to talk about the ciders and the fruit that, you know, like the specific sites the fruit was forged from or the process by which they were made. We get to taste them and enjoy them together. Um, and in that sort of like convivial spirit, think, think about um, how our industry, you know, all the different ways that we can kind of ritualize reparations in, in our businesses and our personal lives. Um, and it's been deeply rewarding. The participants have been um, so engaged and so inspiring. Um, and I'm really looking forward to doing it again. We're actually doing our next tasting on Sunday. That package is all sold out, and then we're going to do another package um, for the holidays. Love that, very cool. I, I was curious about that. I mean, I, I maybe I didn't read deep enough, but I didn't get the sense of everything that was involved in that. That's really cool to hear. I that you might have you might have a new <laughs> participant. Um, so many things that I <laughs> would love to talk to you about. Um, but since we since since I, I'll try to bookend it, since I brought up that really lovely um, Perry that you made, and now that we're talking about foraging and everything that's involved in that, can you sort of walk us through the process of actually how you made that cider specifically? Like, let's go into nitty gritty details. Like, if I if I wanted to do that, if I wanted to go forage fruit and and make a cider and mm-hmm. wanted to do it the way you did it, to try to to try to in some way come anywhere near the beauty of that thing what would i need to do i guess you have to find the trees you have to figure <laughs> out one yeah you have to figure out when the fruit's going to be ripe um and you have to gather the fruit from the trees that are ripe around the About. same time <laughs> so that you have enough to fit in your press yeah and then back at the cidery um there's that issue of how about about how much did were you able to get from you know just the wild foraging of of pear trees well, our our farm intern from 2018 our first farm intern he's come back on successive years to um, wild forage um and um last year matt said he foraged fourteen thousand pounds wow pear, okay yeah. What does that translate his phone, to? His phone said he walked 150 miles. Yeah. That's amazing. Carrying, <laughs> carrying, carrying right. like 40 pounds yeah. in each hand. 
Yeah. Right. And running away from cows. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I imagine pears spilling out of the bucket. Pears are freaking heavy too. Pears are right. like, they have no juice. They just have like uh, rock fiber in them or something. Right. <laughs> just lead. They're lead. heavy. Um, um, so, so that, how much does that translate into in terms of juice? So you bring it back and, and you, I mean, so what is the macerating machine like is it like just two big wheels that spin together and have teeth so we have them? a we have an oesco orchard okay. equipment supply company rack and cloth press is built in massachusetts okay. um and it has a grinder that grinds the fruit into pumice this is going to be different um for you from grapes because grapes is a soft fruit from which the juice will flow um right. but home fruits um, don't, as you know, you can't really squeeze an apple and get the juice out. So, uh, they're ground as fine as can be without being so fine that the seeds are ground up. Um, and so that skins pulp, everything, which then, um, we layer in the, the racks and cloths. Uh And it's just like a form that holds the pumice. You fill it up, you fold the cloth around it. You put another layer on top. You do that 13 times and then you press it um, also differently from grapes. Uh, you press it under like very high pressure Got it. And, um, and then you have your juice. And okay. it, how, how I much, would, I mean, if, if I can ask, it, how long does it take you to do the grinding and rack and cloth pressing of a ton of apples or pears? Oh my gosh, let me go yell at the dog. Okay, I'll figure that out. <laughs> I mean, okay, I mean, it so, sounds like a very time-consuming process. Well, it does depend on the fruit. Like um, like a dessert apple, we can like really rock and roll with, and we could probably right. press um, oh, easily 100 gallons in an hour and a half in our racket cloth press. Um, okay. And that would be like, that would be about 1200 pounds of fruit okay um, 100 gallons yeah, 100 yeah. so fruit. for pears it would probably be like 1500 pounds of fruit right. and 60 gallons right oh wow okay with, with Got the, it. um the just, forage, with the, with the right not with yeah. just, not with like the pears like that. that are yeah. wild are a totally different beast yeah. than what you, yeah. when you think of like a bartlett or a bosk yeah right so what what should we think of? What's it more like? Um, okay, I'll give it to you. Think of pumice <laughs> from a Bartlett pear as like as like a as like a carnival ride sled ride down a hill, <laughs> like, like a water could, slide, like a water slide. <laughs> like you could you could pick up like you could probably break the speed of sound sliding on a plastic sheet on it. Whereas right. you could probably build a building with the with the mortar. That it's like you, a dopey yeah, from grinding up wild pears <laughs> between block, and it would hold. Are they the smaller? Block. I imagine they're smaller too, right? They're all different sizes, smaller. all different sizes, oh. all different colors. Yeah. But um, they're often uh, wildly tannic. Yeah, like people think that seedling apples are at an extreme. Like seedling but, pears are extreme tannin and acid sometimes often. Super okay. 
Okay. So like how... some people shrink into dolls when they play <laughs> into it. All the water leaves the body. Leaves <laughs> <the> body. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I think Maddie Matt might have shrunk over time. <laughs> he was a big man when he came to us. <laughs> he's tasting too much wild pear. <laughs> but, so, uh, so, okay. So how does that then translate into the elixir that I tasted? So you, yeah, you I, think Autumn, I think Autumn should magic. also, I think something that Autumn's really brought to it and to the fermentations has been the addition of, um, with the, um, uninoculated fermentations this step that she now incorporates so when i when i um do wild fermentations that that doesn't mean to me like uninoculated like press it and put it in a tank um okay because the well one of the things you have to think of with apples and pears and the way they're pressed is that you remove them from the skins and i know the yeast on the skins goes into them but um, it, it is, a lot of it is removed. It. Yeah. And, yeah. and then, you know, the other thing is it's just like, okay, there's only so many yeast cells on, on the outsides of, of each pair and we're making a lot of juice and it takes a while for that fermentation to get going. And this is something I learned when I was working at the winery. It was shocking to me what they got away <laughs> with in the winery. Um, and they make very good wine. But right. if we did that in the cidery, uh, you know, our, we would have terrible problems. And I, and I think that's something that can partially explain why there's so much horrible cider out there. Um, uh, but what, uh, what are you talking about? That they, they are allowing it to just sit until the fermentation kicks off? Just all any... sorts of things. They, you know, they take their wine thief and they go from barrel to barrel to barrel or they just rinse it when they're done. I mean, the type of hygiene that we practice in the cidery is obsessive. Uh, uh, um, and, okay. you know, there's two things to think about, you know, for you as a winemaker, any winemakers listening to this or thinking about making cider, one is that wine is naturally higher in alcohol and alcohol, you know, has this stabilizing right. quality and, to it. And antiseptic um, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and so you're talking about something that doesn't, I mean, in the most extreme cases might go to 10% alcohol, but really it's more like 7 and eight. Um, so it's fragile in that sense. And then, you know, with apples, you have a situation where almost all of the acid is malic acid. And if you have Mm. a malolactic fermentation, it's, it is quite frankly, disgusting because you have nothing but lactic acid when it's done. Um, and it, 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 it's just like, you know, it's like, a fire waiting to start. It's just, it's all that rich food for the LABs. So, right. So there's that. Um, and then, you know, there's these other aspects that, um, uh, you know, might be somewhat related to grape wine making, but when you're working with really, really tannic juice and, Mm. um, oxidization, you know, um, there's like that that you're trying to balance out. And then also, and so like, this is the thing with pears is that their chemistry is even weirder and wilder. They have all sorts of crazy things going on. They have 
unusual polysaccharides and other unfermentable sugars like sorbates. Um, they have a uh, crazy, like we made this batch of berry uh, from a single tree um, and we didn't make that much of it. Uh, boy, maybe it was like, I can't remember how many gallons it was. Maybe I thought it was like 50. And by the time I racked it, it was 20. And what was left was like this incredible, incredibly beautiful cotton candy, pink, uh, paste kind of jello. Yeah. Jello. Okay. Um, what was it made out of? I don't know. It's, it's, it has to, <laughs> it's I know a lot of it has like, to do with like, tannins precipitating out. Um, oh, and, and maybe just like the pectin, tannins. the natural. Yep. Yeah. That's what we yeah. chose, chose to graph like a row. To, like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's an incredible pair. So, yeah. So anyway, um, we, in our wild fermentations, what we do is I make like a starter culture out of the fruit that we're going to be using. So if, Matt comes in with a bin of these pears, then I make that starter culture pretty quickly. Um, okay. This is another thing that's different between apples and grapes, which is that um, you don't need to press them right away. And often you don't want to press them right away. Um, Got it. Sometimes right. with pears, especially mm-hmm. uh, if you waited to the moment that you wanted to press them on the tree and tried to shake them off, they would be pear butter on the ground. So uh, you pick gotcha. them, you know, ahead of time and then they, um, they mm-hmm. start know, to you, decompose you mill them it's called milling them or sweating them and then they go through okay. the transformation of starches and sugars off the tree um and so i make the starter culture by using like a champion juicer and I just grind up the fruit with the skin on it and you know get it started and then i i add it back to the tank when we press it so that's one way um one thing that i do and then you know again like i said just excessive hygiene yeah okay so you all right. So when you make that starter call, do you make multiple starters just so mm-hmm. that to make sure that one of them goes off at least, at least and sort of broaden? No, I make multiple starter cultures for different batches. Okay. Got it. So if we're doing Kingston Black from our Albee Hill Orchard, I run up there and I get that. Like those starter cultures inevitably really kick off. They are the, time after they're never, yeah. they never fail. Yeah. yeah. Oh, why is that? Because that probably because they have so much skin on them, right? Because. We have, we're harvesting fruit from vibrant, healthy ecosystems that have, you know, uh, beneficial microbiology living on the skins. I don't know and, if you could do that with, with conventional fruit. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. And and so. <laughs> Nobody's going to try it either. Who's growing <laughs> yeah, it. right, right. Sure. Like, Why would I do that? Um, <laughs> that's not, yeah. But so, okay, so you have. But when you're adding that to, let's say you have your 60 gallons of juice uh, from, you know, the 1500 gallon, 1500 pounds of pears and you add your starter, you're adding the whole slurry. So you're at, like, you have a yeah. clean juice, but you're adding a little bit of muck to it. Yeah, it's okay. But it's a little bit. It settles out. Yeah, it's that's not a problem at all. I don't think. Okay, okay. Yeah, it I'm out. just curious, just, just yeah. making sure that I'm not missing a step. Do you sulfite yeah. at all, like to prevent malolactic? conversion or we we use sulfites during pressing to prevent oxidization okay um i'm really interested because i i learned about a practice um well you well you probably do this um but i didn't i didn't really i wasn't really exposed to this when i when i went and made white wine with um 
Louis Barol in France when I was doing the sabbatical and they did, well, they did sulfites too, but they used to dry ice. So I want to, I want to play around with that a little bit this year to just see if, do some comparisons to see if that could sort of protect from the oxygen enough. Oh, uh, the driest because then it, you'll produce the CO2, CO2 blanket. Yeah. Blanket. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you so, were going to talk about the, the browning of the, the white juice before. Oh, because that's another thing. Like if instantly certain... brown because, okay. yeah, because that's like, that's like another thing that's so different because you don't, because with grapes, the tannins are in the skins. And so you've got the juice or you have like, you know, whatever you have the skin and you're getting the color and, um, the, the, that, that's why apple juice that you buy at the orchard in the plastic jug that's unfiltered and unpasteurized is brown. Right. The tannins are in the flesh of apples. So right. the moment you grind them, they're oxidizing. Got it. Okay. So with this peri, the pear, the pear side, are you, you brought those in, forged a bunch of apples, um, sure. sweat pears. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Sweated them, milled them for how long? How many days did you let those go? I mean, we can make something up. I don't know if we know for sure. We can remember. Okay. Is it? Is there a? Yeah, they... it's. It could be like like a week. It depends on the temperature. A lot of times, it's cool uh, here okay. in the fall. Um, I don't like stuff sitting around for weeks just because at that point I feel like the risk is like, Oh, what is the microbiology in our cidery, you know, or what right, is it in the right. bins or like whatever else it's yeah. like less of the orchard and more like of the cidery right. at that point. Got so it, it. Um, we do, you know, we're not the type of cidery that like picks all our apples, puts them in cold storage and then thinks about pressing later in the winter when we have time, we're definitely doing it as we go. Um, right. But it's cool. it's it's in like these cycles, so maybe we'll we'll like, you know, pick for ten days and then we'll press what we picked, and then we'll pick for another mm -hmm. two weeks. Ah, we'll okay, I gotcha. Um, so it's some some of the the pears, for example, might have been less milled than uh -huh. the others. Like they might got it. Okay, so it's because right. it's constantly coming in, and then you take right. a break, and whatever is in. Some of it's been for a while, right. so it's brand new. Got it. Okay. If it's Somewhere. not ripe, we'll set it aside. Yeah. Like it's more important for it to be ripe than to like not gotcha. sitting right. around. You know what I mean? But yes. and then yeah. on the, like on the other end of the spectrum, you know, we we do if we feel like the fruit is starting to fall apart and we're not going to press for another couple of days or the temperature's too warm, we can throw it in the cooler. Um. So yeah, we try to make sure the fruit is really sound. Got it. That's another, I think, really important piece mm -hmm. to doing natural fermentations. Right. Are you picking fruit or picking up fruit? Picking up. Okay. So almost it's, it's, almost exclusively. Even it's, it's, even in our sh own shaking orchard. And shaking. Yep. Mm -hmm. Shaking so it drops. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And I want to say something about that because I feel like a lot of people whose context is conventional orchards have seen apples rotting on the ground in those orchards. Um, and there's two things about that. One is that like dessert fruit with where the tannins and apples have been bred out of it for its eating quality right. is much less resistant to decay. <laughs> it just starts to, it just rots immediately. It's mm -hmm. astonishing. And cider fruit 
can persist. You can take a bite out of, you know, an Ellis bitter and then throw it back in the bin and it won't rot. It won't get, it won't get a vinegary smell, you know, like it's it's, very interesting. It gets like a, it gets like a, um, like a leather coat desirable. If it's on the ground, it's just, Oh, right. uh, I think it's, it picks yeah, up. It's, yeah, it's this. Um, uh, yeah, I can't think of the word for it, but it's like this idiosyncratic rot that is characterized by cider apples. Yeah. Okay. And the other, the other thing that I would say is that in those orchard settings that people might be familiar with, the apples are falling on a bare herbicide strip, and so they get bruised and they get battered and they get pieces of rocks and dirt in them. Um, whereas like the apples that we're harvesting are falling on like a a lush, thick grass, um, that cushions their fall. Even in the forest, it's not like a forest litter in the forests that the foraging, it's more open than that. Oh, you're at, is it muddy underneath the trees? Like bare or is it Well, I just imagine. It it varies. I don't, I don't know if, I mean, think of pears and apples as like a forest edge. Yeah. Right. 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 I would say. Right. They usually get shaded out, right? They're not. Yeah, they're not competitive with, you know, like the temperate Oaks. forest yeah. species. Got it. Okay. Okay. That that definitely makes a lot of sense. Yep. Um, okay. So we've got we've got the fermentation kicked off. We ima- I imagine you've like just cleaned the clean the heck out of, you know, the, the fermentation vessel and anything oh. that the juice touches along the way. And now right. it's kind of sealed to a certain degree. How you're, you're covered, it's covered with, is it in like a tank, like a steel? It, dep- it depends. So we ferment in neutral oak and we also ferment in stainless steel. And in our situation, what that means is, um, like we don't have a glycol chiller and, you know, temperature control. So right. it's just like a kind of a, a big, uh, inexpensive a big... variable capacity stainless steel tank. Got it. Got um, it. Like a holding tank. The pear, um, most of the pear was fermented in neutral oak last year. So the pear that you had was in a barrel. Okay. Is now, and I, and I, I mean, what I know from winemaking is that that's where a lot of those malolactic flora can can hide even after deep cleaning barrels that you know if you like we because we want malolactic conversion to happen in wine usually i mean unless it, unless you want to keep a really crisp wine like a white or mm. something like that or a rosé then you might use a tank because you can actually clean it mm. to the point of sterility versus a barrel mm. where you there's just no way to get it sterile like it's gonna have some little microbes hiding in the crevices of the barrel and that and and so like we'll put our reds in neutral because we want it to go through malolactic and soften and become a plush you know lush mouthfeel versus yeah it's interesting that you say that because it it makes me feel really paranoid (laughs) yeah right (laughs) i I I say that as a warning to you the barrels that we fermented from you you know the, the barrels that I, that I have. The, the barrels that that uh, the pear was fermented in were uh, lark meat barrels. I'm sure they were like red wine, you know, malolactic uh, girls. But anyway, the the ironic thing about that is actually we that Finger Lakes Forest Perry is really like does not did not does, it's not malolactic, and 
a batch of perry that I fermented in stainless steel did go malolactic. And pear is even worse than cider. Oh wow. <laughs> last when year I, desirable. <laughs> last year I blended yeah, here's a story for you. Last year, uh Oh, this is a good one. Yeah, it's a great one, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to hear it. Um, I I was I just was being um less I was it's a I was, great story for the for the for the, the trajectory, the entire So I'm forty one and I am I'm I've been doing this for a long time and like my nerves are a little bit frayed. <laughs> <laughs> and I think like it's it's exhausting to kind of be paranoid all the time. And mm. I think I was just like feeling relaxed last year. That was, <laughs> that was my problem. never relaxed during during the, <laughs> during, during, during the entire year. Well, actually, yeah, there is not a time when you can't relax. And um yeah, I think I think that Celia or Matt or somebody said to me like, "Do you, does this taste like it's going mallow to you?" And I was like, "No, it can't be. I'm not like I'm just not even going to face this." And so instead of being more paranoid and cautious about it, I went ahead and blended um, a whole bunch of Perry tanks together, and oh, no. uh, and whatever the chemistry that happened with the malolactic tank and the other Perrys created mouse oh boy and so this is wild foraged fruit painstakingly gathered over the course of the Uh. season um that was oh god it was maybe like 300 gallons of it oh yeah so oh it was so painful (laughs) painful. okay but the story keeps going the story keeps going so one of the things that i also i think about doing like wild fermentation and taking that risk is like a lot of times the way that we 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 do things whether it's in agriculture or whether it's you know in the cidery or the winery is it's not done in a vacuum it's done in the context of these economic systems of our businesses and um like i'm really inspired for example by um the kind of holistic, um, uh, what is the word I'm trying to say? So like, like in Normandy, they have these cider orchards that are also pastures and they Mm -hmm. graze cows and make delicious cheese, which happens to pair with their cider. Um, and so because it's a multi-use farming system, they don't apply intense you know, pressures on them. This, this is like a traditional cider orchard. I know they have modern orchards too, but you're not applying this intense pressure on yourself to get like a yield per acre. And so you can do uh, lower interventions and have, you end up with biennial fruit. And so you have these bumper years and then you have these like really quiet years. And in the bumper years, you distill the extra cider, you know, that you wouldn't sell because you have an amount of cider that you sell and you bank it away and that also goes with these natural fermentations that they do, that if, if something goes wrong, you just distill it and it just moves on to a different product. So I really mm-hmm. admire that. And I think that's like a really important component of like yeah, these survival. risk taking. <laughs> yeah. um, so yeah, we yeah. took that, that mousy Perry and distilled it. And um, it's, huh. we, we bottled a little bit of it um, kind of like, more fresh, like more fresh Pomo. And then the rest of it has been in a barrel 
um, mm. for a year and it's, it's getting really exciting now. I'm looking forward mm. to blending a new batch of Pomo with it. I'm really excited by that too. I mean, I, I love that idea. And how, so you guys aren't distilling on the property, right? You, you're using. No, we oh, take okay. it up to um, Colin. What's his last name? It's, um, it's a wonderful name for a distiller. Oh, McCondo. Yeah, Colin McCondo um, okay. is yeah. the distiller up at uh, a friend of ours. Um, Dave DeFisher has has uh, Apple Country Spirits up in Williamson, and Colin okay. has been distilling up there for like maybe ten years, maybe longer. He's, I mean, he's, he's only fifteen years old, <laughs> and he's and he's really good. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's gotten really good. really good. It's it's pretty impressive. I I love the stuff that that um, he's been doing for us. Okay, I love that. Um, I was going to say, I, I've heard anecdotally from only one source, but uh, like mm. somebody who I trust, you might, I mean, just as a thought, uh, so they, they received, they're a distributor, they received a, like a, a pallet or something, or, or I don't know, maybe it was just a big shipment, like 30 cases of, of wine from one of their, you know, one of their clients, one of their, one, one of the wineries in their book. And it was, and it was mouse tainted. And they didn't know what to do with it. I mean, they'd already bought it, so they just stuck it in their warehouse. And two years later, two years mm-hmm. later, yeah, they, yep, that they, is that has yeah, actually that happened to us. That yep, happened. it's real. Yeah. It's it, totally it, true. It just went away, like it was like a beautiful yeah. wine, supposedly. Yeah, but this was this was not the kind of that. This that that happened to us. We but in Perry, it's always with Perry. Perry is such a heartbreaker. Oh, I don't know if you should think about doing it. So <laughs> That's the one I want to do. <laughs> the, thing, the thing with the, 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 the mouse evolution or whatever disappearance, supposedly you, you can't have sulfur in it or you have to have very, you have to have below a certain parts per million for that, for that return. Uh, for that, um, okay. For that extinguishing of the, of the mouse. But we had a we had a situation like that where we had Perry that was already in the bottle in its secondary <laughs> fermentation, or maybe we had already disgorged it or something like that. Yeah. And then one day we tasted it and we we're like, this has mouse. And, uh, and we just didn't deal with it. And we set it aside it. and whatever. We didn't need to sell it and blah, 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 blah. And then one day we were like, oh, like whatever. We probably were like, let's taste it before we dump it or something. Yeah. And it was like, fine. And we were like, oh, are we crazy or maybe we don't know what we're talking about or whatever we actually sent it to uh ets labs mm-hmm. and they were like this isn't a mouse wow that, that, okay. they confirmed that for us that whole thing like yes it can go away yeah. that's amazing that's pretty yeah cool. that's so had that's you and you hadn't yeah. sulfured that one or had i you guess we, i guess it was well it's below Our, up certain parts per yeah, million. sulfur is always very 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 low yeah got it yeah that's very cool. So, yeah. all right. So, but let's assume. <laughs> all right, we got. We're we're navigating. We're almost to the end of that. Almost well, made no. it. Okay. Almost <laughs> made it. You to, never, never <laughs> made it to the bottle, or made okay, it, so, made it, made it okay, down so, the consumer's throat. <laughs> no, no. Like you. Okay, where were we with the the cider making process? I think we were at. Okay, it's fermenting. Mm-hmm. Are, how long does that process take while it's in? It okay, is, you put it in neutral barrels. That's where we were. You yeah, have it it's in all barrels. over the place. It is all over the place. And I okay. don't have, I can't tell you. Do, like, do you just keep checking it? Why? Yes. We check okay. religiously. And that's, I think that's also a, a very important part of 
quote unquote natural cider making. It's we staying on top of the fermentations and seeing if they've um, if they've uh, stalled. Yes, we right. don't. We like this is this is this is. I always like just put my head in my hands when I go to these like university presentations about how you have to have certain amount of yeast assimilable nitrogen. Otherwise you're going to get hydrogen sulfide and your yeast is going to be sick. And it's just like not my experience whatsoever. Um, And I'm, I hope I'm not embarrassing myself here because I'm, I've just like, this is an observational like knowledge I've just Mm -hmm. have from observing. um, And, you know, maybe I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I feel that like the pace of the fermentation just has to match the nutrients and the nutrient recycling that happens in that cider. And that's when you get a nice clean fermentation without hydrogen sulfide. And if it goes too fast um, or, you know, or there's too much or the yeast wants to go too fast and it's mismatched with what's in there, that's when you start to get problems. Um, And I think that we court the very extreme edge of fermentations that are so slow, they almost stop. (laughs) And so for us, fermentation checks, usually what that means is that we're catching a fermentation that's starting to grind to a halt. And then we make an intervention and that intervention is usually a pump over. And that's it. I, I added... Sometimes you um, use a, another tank um, that's fermenting. Yeah, that I'll do that like as a next step. If the pump over doesn't work and I have like a vigorously fermenting tank, I'll I'll put some of that cider into the tank that's stalling out. And then I think maybe out of, you know, like like 50 different fermentations that I did last fall, I added Fermade O to two of them that were just not gonna not gonna go and um and it was unacceptable how sweet they were so (laughs) and did that help did that do the trick yeah Mm -hmm. yep wow okay so it just it did just need a little nutrition i think yeah like i said i think that's just kind of the 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 place where we live with our fermentations is like right at that edge pushing the boundary pushing the limit and and sometimes what that means is we literally had fermentations that were just finishing up in July. <laughs> like the summer heat comes back around and is like, right. Oh, yeah. oh. Right. Right. We, right. we don't have an insulated barn and all that. Nice. Yeah. That's, I, but it also means that we can make pet nets like in January and February that okay. have such slow fermentation curves that they're like quite clear by the time that we, um, rack them and they're still fermenting. Um, you know, so there's a lot of like benefits to it. It's, it's a car that's like driving really slowly. So it gives you more control, I think. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. So do you remember that pear cider, how long it took specific in barrel? It was pressed on October 1st. Specific gravity. Okay. Specific gravity, 1.062. Um, Which, what, what is that? Do you have, I, I can look that up, but Brick's translation, yeah, do you know I, what that I, is? I look that up too. Hold on. I have the chart here. 15.3. 
So it looks okay. like it looks like this one. I I I I I says this one uh, has a spont an active spontaneous ferment, and I did not add a pied de cuvee to it. Hmm. Um, let's see. It finished hmm. up. Let's see. It was pressed when. It was October 1st, and on 12-28, it was 1.005, which I think is, with the pear and the unfermentable sugars that they have, is, you know, completely Pretty dry. Much. There's nothing else that's going to ferment in that. Oh, and so then what, what we do after that is we, um, we cold settle it in the cooler, um, depending on... So with this one, um, we added bentonite because it's like full of protein. Um, ah, okay. So to clarify, and we don't it. love like don't love like you know we don't love the the big chunky fluffy um, sediment that comes out. Right. And um, we we de filtered it, which means that it probably. Um, was not like settling out and clarifying enough on its own in the time frame that we had for it. Even with and the bentonite. So then we put it in the bottle uh, with a tirage. And okay. this is actually, at this point, it's a commercial yeast, a champagne yeast. And um, with what was the, the, the liquid of the tirage? Well, we just mixed into the tank um oh so it's like, like a, a, a a starter culture of um a db10 champagne yeast and um like a uh i can tell you what it is um, and then you just bottled well bottled we it. also put you know we also put in the equivalent amount of um organic cane sugar that is nine grams per bottle does that make sense yep Absolutely. So it's it's something you know in that in that um, in that fifty gallons it was I don't know what it was like ten pounds or something like that. I got um, you. And just okay, mixed so. it into the tank before we bottled. Got it. Okay. So a little sugar, a little yeast um, into something that probably had a, a little bit of residual sugar even, but right, mm -hmm. like I mean, at one point zero zero five, you still have. But it was probably sorbate. Or, sorbate, uh, okay. Sorbate. Something on sorbitol. I didn't mean sorbate. I meant sorbitol. Really <laughs> <laughs> <Totally> cyanide. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but something unfermentable, an unfermentable. Sugar. Probably yes. That yeah. that's my experience with the pears. Is they always stop their fermentation around that level, whereas the cider, you know, often goes all the way. Does that lend to a a drinker's experience of sweetness? Yes, in I believe so. For sure. So, so that might be part of the appeal of, of a peri for some people is that even when it's dry, it's a, it's a little yeah. a little perceptible sweetness. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. That sounds kind of fun. Okay, and so you did all that in tank and then bottled after using after after doing like a tirage and and mass basically and then bottled. Yep. Crown cap. Crown cap and and now. You guys what told we, me about we set it upside down. Our new did it ferment on its. Um, yep, we turned it upside mouth. down right on okay. the day that we were bottling. 
and, and then you guys talk again. about your your way of riddling is to put yep. <laughs> and, then, and then and then a week before down. bottling we we picked it up with the tractor and drove around the farm <laughs> <laughs> shake the heck out of it yeah. <laughs> and, then and then we put it down. in the cooler yeah okay. and then uh, we disgorged it um in june now okay so you put it oh, okay after a, a week before bottling no not a week before bottling. A week before disgorging. Week before disgorging. Yeah, it was okay. bottled in February 10th or something. yeah in February. So got it. Whenever you added the tirage to the base, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Love that. And disgorging you do by hand, I imagine. Yes. And how many bottles did you do by hand? I mean, last year was not a big production, right? Yeah, we've probably, because we, we, our orchards are very biennial. And so like this year we have a, a massive crop and probably next year we'll probably have nothing and we're going to take the year off. And... Good <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you guys, maybe you need help with your start. harvest. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I, I think that like in, in, a, in a heavy year, um, we'll do about 24,000 bottles. Mm-hmm. to disgorge wait what are you serious thousand bottles mm-hmm. how many people are involved in that process um so there's the disgorger who's always ezra <laughs> okay so wait and, you personally disgorge twenty four thousand bottles yeah i could i am so practiced at disgorging i'm gonna work my way around i say i want to i want to do it in france i wonder what it's like <laughs> do they do they hand disgorge in France still? Probably. Some I'm sure somebody does. Yeah, for I sure. Always, I always wanted to see like, is it <laughs> like what is, is we should have really like a dis- disgorger tri- time trials is what you're saying? Like a disgorger yeah, exactly. Like- Com- competitive. <laughs> I, yeah. I do want to compete. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there should That's be a competition in- somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we can set that up. Maybe that would be- we should do for cider week this year. Disgorger it's, time it's trials. I love that. Well, what you could do is you could see who loses the lot the least. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good well, path. time yeah, versus... Yeah, minimum. Well, oh, it's a lot because I could friggin' make a lot of money. <laughs> Not to be cocky or anything, but... <laughs> <laughs> Our whole business model is based on Ezra's arm. So <laughs> I'm stretching my hand right as we speak, actually. <laughs> Put that thing in, in a case. Protect that thing. Um, yeah, I should insure it. That's what I should do. Right, just like a surgeon. It's kind of like the opposite of a surgeon's hand, but sort of and really, of and, really and the cider has really no value. Now. <laughs> but um, yeah. So our bottling line is the disgorger. There's somebody we have like a gravity feed bottler that has um a dosage, which in the case of that Perry is just you know some dry cider that we're literally putting in you know 10 mils 15 mils so it's right it might be like apple even or something yeah Mm -hmm. okay um it's just to bring the fill level back to 750 right and we did not add so2 but we often do we often do but we don't always like 30 or 40 parts per million um, where we did not, and 
I assume like the SO2 would be in that dosage, for right. example. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Calculate. And so then at that, the, the, one of the things is like, it's an, it's a great time to add it because it's like at bottling kind of, but, right, but right. then on the other hand, you know, we're doing everything in such a kind of um, low tech, you know, hand done way. And so if you're adding um, SO2 through your dosage, the dosage is like quite concentrated with SO2. If, if you know what I right. mean, to like bring up right. the, the, to bring it to whatever 30 yes. parts per million in the bottle. Yeah, so you right. have to be very exact with the amount you're topping up with. So that right. like creates this extra step because Ezra is like pretty consistent, but sometimes <laughs> he loses 20 mils. But if it's, right, if it's a difference right. between 10 and 20 and you're doubling the amount of SO2, well, mm. that's not going to work. So got it, that, got it. that makes it much more difficult and slower because um, somebody has to be like looking out for those bottles and like, pre-topping them and all of that stuff so oh, yeah do like a blank fill and then for 10 mil and then the sulfur fill for t- yeah, the other 10 exactly. kind of thing exactly uh, um so we can cruise if we're not adding sulfur and then there's a person it. who's putting the corks in and a person who's putting the um the wire cage on the top and that's the crew so and wash normally off the wash off the bottles okay and then but Normally you're like, if you're, I mean, if you have the CO2 from the in-bottle ferment, you're, mm-hmm. you're protected pretty well. You would think first, we're still but, like thinking about that. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Well, I know what you mean. And then we also get bottle aging where there's oxidization. Okay. Mm-hmm. Even with that so, sparkle. Yeah. yeah, so I think it's stuff that we don't fully understand, really, mm-hmm. um, okay. about cider, how it ages, what the oxygen exposure is through the cork, even with CO2. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is it's good to know. This is all good stuff. I mean, if nothing else, anybody who's listening at this point can understand the nuances of and complications of doing this, making yeah. a sparkling anything really, because you can see the parallels to. Really, I mean, I, I would love to do a sparkling uh, prickly pear. Those are the fruit that I'm kind of working with this year. So, whoa! Um, I, I don't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the problem with them is their sugar content's even lower than apples and pears. So, we're talking like beer level amounts of alcohol. So, I, you know, you've given me a big red flag. Uh, warning about sterility and cleanliness um, if I am going to do that. So <laughs> I, I just, yeah, I think there's probably some very similar concerns. However, I mean, it's an, it's an old tradition, just like with apples and cider. Like there's a very old tradition that goes back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years of fermenting these fruits. So somebody's been Where doing it. Where there's sugar, with... there's alcohol. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Zuri, my son Zuri, he's always asking, like, who do you think invented, like, it'll be something, like, very, I don't know, who do you think invented um, a knife or something like that? <laughs> you know? but, I, but when you say, I was going to say tens of thousands, somebody's probably got, probably somebody, it's probably, it's probably way longer than that. Yeah, right. Beverage. Right. Yeah. I, I am like Neolithic. Cons- Right. Prehistoric. Yeah. Dinosaurs were 
getting drunk for sure. Totally. Yeah, I mean, birds and mice ferment, like drink yeah. fermenting nectar. So, I mean, there you go. Birds are direct descendants. It's probably handed down through the millennia. Probably. <laughs> 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 Uh, I'm always surprised at hu- like the f- just to think about the fact that humans at some point in history have put literally every living thing in this planet in our mouths and eaten it, you know, to figure <laughs> out like <laughs> just to figure out if it was edible, like like every part of every plant, you know. And then we got really good at like we know this part of the plant is edible or this part of the plant is useful, but don't eat it, you know. Like it's amazing yeah. the amount of knowledge that was acquired and, and now lost really over oh i was just gonna say and now like it's reverting like rapidly yeah, yeah, yeah. like we've now we're down to like a hundred things that people know that they can eat and that's about it you know and yeah i mean as opposed to like walking out your door and like the whole forest was your you know was your yeah. garden yeah yeah um well thanks guys that was yeah. super informative and and i i mean how do people let's just eve's eve cider how do they buy your cider how do they buy your cider evecidery.com yeah so we have um a an online store and we ship to 40 states which is a like great accessible way to get our cider um if you're in new york massachusetts um let's see virginia Maine, oh, New Hampshire, California, California, just, just yeah. um, and Scotland. You should ask for our cider at your favorite local wine shop or restaurant because uh, it always distribution. It's always more effective when customers ask for it than when we ask people oh. to carry it. Um, right now, we are completely sold out of cider. Um, it's sort of in this weird year where. Every time we release a cider, it's gone. <laughs> like, um, the cider club is pulling a lot. Yeah, in part because we had we had you know a small production last year because it was an off year, um, and yeah. also in part because uh, we started a cider club that's been super exciting, and um, it's a really fun club, and it's where most of the stuff that's like the Finger Lakes Forest pair is going. Um, and actually, I had to close the six bottle club uh, yesterday because um, it's it's as as many bottles are in like the next release are like now accounted for. But it, it'll it'll get open oh, wow. back up in the fall. Um, and it'll open again in the fall. Yeah, because, it'll open again in the fall. Yeah. So anyway, if you're like a really if you if you really like our cider yeah. <laughs> and you want to like travel along this journey of experimentation um, of single varietals and lo- like specific locations and all of that stuff. The club is probably the best place to do that. I think the artwork is also kind of a neat aspect of yeah, that's it. That's a good point. Yeah. Our kids are doing the labels, um, at least yeah. providing the artwork for the labels to a large extent. Autumn's always done the artwork for the labels, which has been I... like a really distinctive part of the look of our cider. But now Layla and Zuri are doing the labels and, it's really uh, kind of part of our identity now. I think is like art. Oh, I love like, it. Yeah, no. And they're... we and we send out with the club. We send out this little like zine that has um, like s- stories about the cider, like more in depth. You know, like 
where that location was and what the tree was like and, you know, the day we harvested it and, you know, just like whatever. So Ooh. there's that element too. Oh, I really like that. You guys are known uh, around the world, really, for your cider. I mean, let's not mince words. Really? Um, I've, I've I mean, you know, I, I had... I had somebody we we do um, cider tastings here on Saturdays by 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 appointment, and um, we don't have like a sign out front, and and uh, you know it looks like a it looks like a dairy barn. Yeah, um, the the place looks really nice now. I it think. doesn't look like a business. The, like our like no. our laundry. You, well, you came here. Our laundry yeah, is like yeah. hanging on the line, That's and okay. like <laughs> I think it's, it's starting to look really nice. But but it's but anyways, um, this couple came they were from florida out of all places but anyways um she said well you know you might want to think it just like scrawling something on a piece of paper you know out front or something that's <laughs> eve cidery but she said you know i i stopped in vanette and i asked you know where eve cidery is and apparently your neighbors don't know anything about you either <laughs> <laughs> world so, famous locally obscure I mean, there might be people in, in like some pub in scotland who've heard, who've heard of us but i would be I mean, when you say that, I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> World renowned, you say. <laughs> but I feel like that in my day to day life. Well, I mean, it, it, we, I should say as well that you guys are on the outskirts of a town that is an outskirts town. Like, it's a tiny little. That is such in a good mid- way, interesting way to put it. It's yeah. An outskirts I mean, of. Would you say Ithaca or Elmira? <laughs> right. I mean, the I mean, outskirts of Shimon County. The outskirts of yeah. Shimon County. <laughs> so, so you're out there. I mean, it's yeah. it, you. You're a destination, really. There's nothing else. No, no other totally real reason that. to drive into that neighborhood, right. basically. Right. Um, so it's, that's, but that's kind of part of the fun, I think. I mean, for me, it was anyway. And but yeah, I mean, I, I, all, all the more impressive what you've what you're producing and what you're what you're renowned, uh, how that has spread despite your your locational lack experience. of acknowledgement by the locals. <laughs> of our right. Scene. I mean, <laughs> like yeah. yeah. They don't, you don't, you don't get, you don't get noticed or recognized or acknowledged in Vanette until your family has been here for five generations yeah. and you have okay. a road named after you. So well, we did right, get a big right. people have noticed that. I see. <laughs> <laughs> they did. They have noticed that. I bring that up and they're like, oh yeah, I did. I did notice that. What, what did you... Well, they're going to notice it when you put, when you put your Black Lives Matter flag on. Yeah. You got a, oh, a big truck. You got a big truck. That's what you said. Is that, I got a, a big truck and I want to do things to it. Yeah. Like put a, like, like, yeah. Like, like, uh, kind of cut steel and make it into like a BLM, maybe bang, <laughs> gay flag, but put, put four wheel drive axle under it, really jack it up. <laughs> make it really extreme. <laughs> like extreme juxtaposition is what I like. Adam, you should do just one podcast about, Farm equipment. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a great idea. Yes, that would be excellent because I'd really like to talk about Ezra that. Ezra will be a guest. <laughs> yeah. He'll be on the panel. Um. Yeah, totally. It could be farm equipment. And you know, you should probably, before you go to bed tonight, um, Google uh, equipment disasters. That used to be our favorite, <laughs> Zuri and I, to watch. It's to this like, this like awful like heavy metal music and it's just like yeah it's like excavators that have 
sunk into like quicksand and just like the freaking uh, arm is sticking out and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, like, uh, combines that have just caught he's on in the fire. Middle of harvest. He's got to go to bed. Oh, okay. Sorry. It's early. Yeah, there. We have to go early, eat yeah. dinner, but, yeah. but he's, uh, he's still kicking. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's all good. I, I, I trip out on, uh, an Instagram thing called, glad it's not me kind of thing and it's like um, all, well that is all, kind of like equipment disasters right, <laughs> right. of course we have our own equipment disasters but God, that's great i hope yeah. your fires stop soon because i want to see the blue sky around here it's just like it's hazy i i you and me both and i think a lot of other people i mean i think the rest of the country yeah is like i mean it's all, it's all california's fault it is it's all california's fault <laughs> most of it <laughs> uh, um but yeah when i even when i was there i was like hiking around the woods and i was like this isn't the morning fog anymore like it was it was like thick and it was like up on a ridge and i was like the fog is down there why is why is there haze in the woods right now like and then yeah it was like it was it was had come they 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 were talking about it because it was like the winds had shifted and it had come across canada and yeah. Well, that's kind yeah. of the that the connection there. I was just thinking was, you know, we're glad it's not happening to us, but actually, we're all kind of on the same planet here. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a great, great, great point. Um, and we that's why that's why we're doing this. <laughs> so, yeah. hoping for better days to come. Um, yeah. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, thank you for having us. It was a pleasure. Thank you.